Not long ago, there was a, a collector, an antique collector, who was in a dusty attic in a small Austrian village. And this collector, he came across just a stack of pages of faded music. It looked very old. He thought it might be worth something. So he took it to an appraiser nearby, and the appraiser looked at it for a couple of minutes and thought, you know, this might be a work of Mozart. In fact, it looks like it's written in, in Mozart's hand. He called in more experts to check it out, and, and sure enough, it, it was a composition of Mozart, but it wasn't one that anybody recognized. They could tell it was his, but it, it didn't look like it fit exactly with a known work of Mozart. And they, che they checked it out. They were very excited about it, very encouraged about it. What a find this was. It was worth a, a pile of money and all of that. But it was a little bit frustrating because the music seemed incomplete. And they were kind of trying to figure out what's going on here when there was an aha moment for one of the experts that said, Ah, I get it. This is a Mozart piece, but all that we have here is the accompaniment part. We're missing the melody. Still very exciting, but missing the melody, they were all just kind of hoping, well, hopefully in the near future, the melody will turn up and we'll have the whole piece. But I was thinking about that story, and I was thinking about it. It's a bit of a, a description of our life here. It, there are... Moments of beauty, these glimpses that we get of, of the divine, if you will, but there is always a sense that there is something missing, that, that the beauty, that, that the glimpses we get here of, of, of that magnificence, it's, it's fleeting and it's incomplete, right? Um, and yet there's a haunting sense, isn't there? that what we see and experience is part of something bigger, that there's something behind, something maybe, maybe just out of reach in this world. And, and I think we get these glimpses. I mean, it could be a piece of music for you, or a, if you're a mathematician, a beautiful equation. It could be a, a beautiful sunrise over a misty lake. It could, be, um, it could be the laugh lines on an elderly person's face. It could be the laugh of a child. But there are these glimpses, right, these glimpses of beauty that I think... Um, haunt us, that there, there must be something more, there's something missing, because the, uh, in this, uh, behind the beauty, there's a lot more ugliness, right, in this world. There's, there's depravity, and there's violence, and there's prejudice, and, and so the beauty points to something, something bigger, but it, but it is out of sight. It, it, can't quite get our hands on it. And the beauty that we experience, it engages us, but it, it, it always leaves us wanting more. And those of you who are artists, and we have a number at this church, I admire you. I admire you. I, I don't have the gift of, of creating a, a painting or a sculpture, of, of playing an instrument at least not well, uh, of, of dancing, although I do take some credit for dabbing. I think that's part of, you know, uh, anyway... But these things that, that you create, they do point toward, toward the divine, I think, in a sense. And so we come to a text this morning, and I, I couldn't resist. I, this is a beauty and the beast text. 
in Mark chapter 14. Um, and just as in our lives we see these glimpses of the beautiful and the beastly, in the text we get both. It is the beautiful, it is very beautiful, but it is sandwiched between two ugly slices. You'll see what I mean. Let's jump into the text this morning in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. The first piece of ugly coming right out of the gate. It was, it was now two days before Passover, the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests, I want you to listen closely to the words Mark uses here. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. Just, just kind of think about that. The priests, the leading priests, and the people who knew the Bible better than anyone else, they were trying to secretly capture Jesus and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Very practical consideration there for your plotters. I don't want to cause the people to riot. That's, that's ugly, right? I mean, these are, these are leaders. These are spiritual leaders. Use that term loosely. Religious leaders. And they are ready to pounce. When that opportunity, let's grab Jesus and let's do away with him. The beautiful. Here. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy, so someone that Jesus had healed. While he was eating, a woman, we know this to be Mary, there are three accounts of this story. We have details from these other gospel writers. There was a woman, Mary, she came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table, remember this is a dinner party, some of those at the table were indignant. By the way, we know from other gospel writers, Ju Judas Iscariot was leading the charge here of these folks. Some of them were indignant. Why waste such expensive perfume, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And so they scolded her harshly. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You'll always have the poor among you. You can help them whenever you want to. You will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the, the good news is preached, the gospel throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and will be discussed. Now more ugly. Then... Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. Ah, oh, they were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. 
The more time I spend in the Gospels, the more I appreciate, the more I admire Mary. Now, this isn't the, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary of Bethany. Remember the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. The more I see her in the Gospels, the more I come to admire her. She is the, she's the kind of disciple that I think we should aspire to be. I admire her because every time we see her in the Gospels, she is doing something that makes Jesus happy. Every time. Not always doing something that makes the other people in the room happy, but always doing something that makes her Lord happy. One time in the Gospels, you'll remember this story, we find her at her home, listening at the feet of Jesus, soaking in the words of Jesus, and her sister Martha is not happy. She should be helping me with all the stuff that's got to be done. Jesus is happy. Martha, you need to be a little bit more like her. Like Mary. We find her here in Mark chapter 14. Again, at the feet of Jesus. Anointing his head and anointing his feet with this very expensive perfume. There she is later on, just a few days from this story, at his feet again, standing at the foot of the cross, watching her Savior pour out his expensive gift to save humanity. And there she is after that a few days. She's at the tomb where Mary will be one of the very first witnesses of the resurrection, of the empty tomb, Mary. And so at Simon's dinner party, she shows up, and no one in there, think about this, no one at the dinner party seems to get that Jesus is just about to be arrested, is just about to be killed, except for Mary. And so knowing that his death is near, she shows up to anoint him, really high-end perfume here. Pure nard, an aromatic oil that's extracted from plants that are grown in the Himalaya mountains. It's the good stuff. And without saying a word, she breaks open this expensive jar, pours the expensive contents of that jar onto Jesus, and that beautiful scent just fills the room. And it makes me wonder if in just a few days' time, as Jesus is being arrested and tortured and hung on a cross, if he can still smell the scent of that perfume, if it lingers, maybe it comforts him, reminds him in the middle of that hatred of the love of this disciple, of Mary. And in this scene, it's very clear, we have the collision of beauty and the beast. Um, she's preparing the body for burial. Others disparage her and, and ridicule her for being so wasteful. That bottle of perfume, it was worth a fortune. And Jesus answers their criticism, right? Verse 6, he says, leave her alone. Verse 6, he says that she has done something good. Verse 8, he says, she did what she could. And verse 9, 
wherever the gospel is preached, her story is going to be told. And people are going to talk about Mary. And Judas and the others, they were right, weren't they? I mean, technically, they, they were correct. I mean, yeah, if, if that was really worth a year's wages, that perfume, it could have been sold. The proceeds could have been used to do a lot of ministry to help a lot of poor folks out. And no doubt, as we begin to reflect on what happened there, no doubt there are times to be sensible. There are times to do the math. And to think, where is the most good this money could be used? There are times to be practical. And there are also times to be so overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus Christ that you just, you pour out everything you got. You just, you just empty yourself to honor Christ. Sensibility. At times, it can quash the spirit. Practicality. At times, it can trump praise. And we don't want that to happen. Mary's story, every, which is told everywhere the gospel is preached, she, she goes beyond the practical to the beautiful reality of Christ and the future that Jesus Christ is creating and Mark 14, is, it is a Beauty and the Beast story. It is a Mary and Judas story. And Jesus said the story will be retold. It needs to be retold constantly. Now, there are a lot of directions you could take with this story. Um, Barbara, you know, you know that the sermon I'm preaching this morning is not the one that you proofed for me a couple of days ago because I was like, ah, redo this. Because there are so many ways you could go. And I, I just want to keep it simple this morning. Three worshipful responses to this story, okay? The first, this is on your outline this morning. The first one is this. I'll open my eyes to see and appreciate the impractical. To see and appreciate the impractical. Judas was right! The other disciples were right. Mary was being impractical. This was not sensible. It's just that at times, in a world of profit and loss, of balance sheets, of calculations of margins, in a world like this, we need to recognize that there is more to the score. There's part of the music missing. There's a missing melody in the world. It's Jesus Christ. And love, love is powerful. To know that you are loved, it changes you. To experience the security and the comfort of knowing that you are treasured, that you are accepted, it changes you. And Mary knew Jesus loved her. She knew that and she allowed herself to be open to that and to experience that. As disciples, there are places that the love of Christ takes us that the law of God never could. 
There are places that the love of Christ takes us that the law of God never could. Now, it was customary at a gathering like this, a dinner party for the lowliest servant to go from guest to guest and wash the feet. You know this. You've heard this before. Usually use perfumed water to wash the feet of the disciples. She doesn't mix any water in. She just uses straight perfume, pours it out on Jesus. And she shows us something else about beautiful worship here. Here's the second thing. I will strive to take off my mask and be transparent in my worship. This one is hard for us. I'll strive to take off my mask and be, be real, be authentic in my worship. The more I consider what happened here at Simon's house, the more this blows me away. Mary, she had to know that her offering here in Simon's house was not going to be understood or appreciated by everyone in that room. She had to know that, right? Two words. Didn't matter. Didn't matter to her. She loved Jesus more than she valued the approval of everyone else. And she took the risk to express that love and express that worship to Jesus. And I don't think Mary was a rude person, right? I, I don't think she went around trying to offend people, trying to upset her sister, trying to upset other people. It's just, again, those two words didn't matter. Jesus mattered to her more than anything. Jesus was the priority. And we saw this with her and Mary, on a, uh, Martha rather, on a previous occasion. We saw that her sister, who she loved, no doubt, was furious at her. She was spending time, Mary, at the feet of Jesus instead of helping out with chores that needed to be done. Didn't matter. Jesus was the priority. And in a room where others wore these masks and held these pious practical discussions about the right uses of money, the best way that those funds could be spent. There she is, authentically worshiping, unaffected by her critics. Right? To me, different people worship in different ways, right? And to me, it, it doesn't, I don't think it matters to God if, if you worship best to a 300-year-old hymn or if you worship best to a three-week-old Hillsong praise chorus. I don't think it matters to him if you worship best with your eyes closed or your eyes open, with your hands raised or your hands down, if you worship best in silent reverence or you worship best shouting, Hallelujah! If you're worshiping the Lord, then that's what you need to be doing. And while we certainly want to be conscientious and respectful 
of our fellow worshipers, too often I fear that we care too much about what the other dinner party guests are thinking. We don't want to be off-putting to someone. We certainly don't want to be criticized by other people in the room, and so we hold back. But Mary understands that there will be times in her life when her devotion to Jesus, it will be misunderstood, it will be misjudged, And she is wise enough, isn't she, not to react to that and not to respond to her critics. Third point here. I will watch out for the temptation to elevate service above the Savior. Interesting thing in this story, right? Elevating service above the Savior putting the mission ahead of the Messiah. It's an interesting thing. It's it's easy, easy, easy to do, to get so busy doing the work of God that, that you can kind of leave him out of it, to get so active in serving, in ministry, so involved in, in projects that are good that we can kind of leave him behind. So why do we care for the poor? Why do we send hundreds of thousands of dollars to share the good news with people we'll probably never meet on the other side of the world. Why do we do that stuff? And unless we get clear on that, we can find ourselves supporting the cause without the Christ. We can find ourselves doing the service without the Savior. Ministry matters. Using funds well, that, yeah, that matters. To help the poor, to reach the lost, to teach our kids, to impact our mission field here in Dallas-Fort Worth, that matters. But we must never get so wrapped up in our work, in our parts, that we forget the most beautiful part of the score, the melody that is Jesus The world, don't need to tell you this, there's a lot of ugly going on out there and in here. And the beauty of Jesus Christ, to take that beauty in and to share that beauty wherever we go. That's who we are as His disciples. French novelist Gabrielle Villeneuve published that familiar story back in 1740, The Beauty and the Beast. You know the story. It's being retold and retold and retold. By the way, in each new version of Beauty and the Beast, the beast starts getting a little more handsome. In her story, it really was a hideous beast, okay? And in her story... The basics have held up. Beauty meets beast. 
there is a relationship that forms, kind of a friendship that forms, and over time, that hideous creature is so loved, is so treasured by the beauty, that that beast is completely transformed. I mean, inside and out, transformed. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the gospel story. It's hard not to see that. Every person, every single one of us, we struggle with sin. We have darkness within. We have this battle between good and evil, between the ugly, between the beautiful. All of us, we live with this darkness. And spiritually speaking, we are grotesque and hideous and ugly. And the gospel story is the story of the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, who comes into this dark, grotesque world. A sin-stained world. Why? Why would He do that? For God so loved the world. He did it because of His love for you and me. He accepted us. He loved us. He died on the cross for us. He rose from death to life for us. He gave us the gift of His, of His Holy Spirit. Tell me He doesn't love us. And that transformation... It begins for me, it begins for, it begins for each person. It be begins when by faith in Jesus Christ, in that story, it begins when we accept that, when we put our faith in the good news. And then we are moved deeper into that beautiful melody of God's love, changed forever as we come to understand and experience just how treasured and loved we truly are, and we share that message with others. And this morning, for you, it may be that time to cross that line of faith and to join the song, to say yes to Jesus, yes to the gospel, to be immersed in the gospel story, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and become his, his follower with the help of His Spirit. Maybe you just need prayers. We'll create a space where you can, can pray over someone or seek prayers this morning with someone around you or come down and pray with me or one of the shepherds. But just respond to God's grace this morning as we stand together and worship.